I love books. I love reading all kinds of books from dystopian fiction to spirituality to fancy restaurant cookbooks. I've always actually kind of loved to write. I was that teenager writing depressing poetry after school and after reading Generation X by Douglas Copeland for the first time, turning in stream of consciousness essays in English class. My name is Desiree Nielsen. I am a registered dietitian, cookbook author, and total food and book nerd. And you're listening to a very special episode of the All Sorts podcast. And it was actually my dream to write nutrition books since before even I knew what a dietitian was. Like for real, when I was 18, my dream was to write a best-selling nutrition book and get on Oprah. Because yes, I was a teenager in the 90s. But honestly, I had no idea of what went into actually making a book happen. And when you go to the bookstore, there are literally hundreds of cookbooks to choose from. And each one represents two to three years of someone's life. I mean, sure, if they're super famous and super rich, they might have had like this massive crew of 10 or 20 people to help them make the book, like maybe even a ghostwriter because that totally happens. But for the rest of us authors, well, every single recipe I have ever written has been produced in my tiny East Vancouver kitchen. Thousands of hours of recipe testing, searching research papers on PubMed until midnight and writing and rewriting all the rewriting to create the book you hold in your hands. And since my new book, Good for Your Gut, will be out in a few months, May 2nd, and yes, you can pre-order it now, I thought it would be fun to do a little sneak peek into the publishing world and what it is really like to write and create cookbooks. So this week, I have a special two-part series called So You Want to Write a Cookbook? And for part one today, I'm speaking with my amazing literary agent, Carly Waters, to get under the hood of what it takes to actually make it in this business. Carly Waters is a senior VP and senior literary agent at the Toronto-based PS Literary Agency. She is also the co-host of the popular writing podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Oh, I wish that was around before I started writing books. And Carly has a master's degree in publishing studies from City University London, and she represents award-winning and best-selling authors in the adult fiction and nonfiction categories and select children's books. We're talking about the cookbook process from idea through to publishing in part one. Like, how do you get an agent? What do you need to do before you even write the book? What are publishers looking for in a cookbook? How long does it take to write a book? And can you actually make a living as a cookbook author or as a literary agent? The publishing industry can seem so secretive and really hard to penetrate. So if you're wondering about how it all works, even if you're not planning on publishing anything anytime soon, I really hope you love this episode. In part two, which is going to come out this Friday, we're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at creating both Eat More Plants and my latest Good for Your Gut with my friend and collaborator, Sophia McKenzie. So that's right, two pods in one week. So let's dive in. I'm so excited for this. I'm excited to like, I don't know, it feels very meta to talk to you. like writing a cookbook when we make cookbooks together. And and yeah, I think it'd be interesting. I think most of the things I'm going to ask you today are things I've like, like never really asked you, even though I've been through the process myself. So I think it's going to be kind of funny. 
Yeah. Well, it's funny because we obviously email on a regular basis. We emailed today about your book and now we get to, you know, do the audio thing on it too. I know. It's so cool. So I wanted to start by like, especially because, you know, when you grow up, there is like a very narrow window of like, what jobs am I going to do? I'm going to be like a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, a firefighter. I bet not a lot of seven-year-olds realize there's this career (laughs) called, you know, literary agent. So like, how did you like fall in love with publishing or even sort of get the idea that publishing is where you'd want to spend your career? Yeah. It's such a funny question because as you say, like even book nerds like me, when you're seven years old, you're like, I love books, but nobody thinks, Hey, is there an industry behind the making of these books? And it's amazing that there's a whole business. So I actually didn't know anything about publishing until I went to university. I went to Queens. I did an English literature degree and I thought I was going to be a teacher because that's what everybody thinks they're going to be. And I kind of just thought, you know, I just don't really feel like being in a classroom with kids is just like what I want to do in terms of the iteration of like what I love about books and, and how to translate that into a job because the teaching kids is about, taking care of kids and helping them grow and learn. It's not as much about the text itself, right? So I had to kind of come back to like, what is what is it that I love about my degree? What is it that I love about books? And so I think my, you know, my fourth year of, of undergrad kind of rolled around and I had that kind of epiphany moment of like, it's the books, like that's the thing. That's what I love about this. And so I started doing a bit of research into, you know, what people do next. And so I graduated from Queens in 2009. And if anybody remembers that year, it was like, the recession had happened in 08. And so graduating into a recession, everybody was doing grad degrees, right? It's like, basically you had to do more school because you can't get a job any other way or you needed to postpone getting into the market. So everybody I knew was basically doing either certificates, post-grad programs, you know, masters, PhDs. And I guess I have a nerdy group of friends. <laughs> so, we were, <laughs> so we were figuring out what we were going to do. And so I thought, okay, publishing, right? How do you get this degree or how do you get into this? And so I started doing some research. I'm Canadian. So I was looking in Canada. There was um, a certificate program in Toronto that you could do over the summer. The only kind of master's program was at Simon Fraser in BC. It was two years, but I really wanted to do some post-grad training in a market that was a bit more international because there wasn't a huge publishing scene in Vancouver. So to me, it was like, oh, if I'm going to go out there for my degree, I kind of want to be near more publishers. So I started looking at New York, started looking at London. And you know, being a Commonwealth country, I was like, okay, I'm just going to go to London, sight unseen, started applying to master's programs. There's some great ones. There's UCL and City University and Oxford Brooks and, and things like that. So I decided to go to City University to do my master's in publishing. And I was so excited. You know, I kind of, it was that epiphany moment of, okay, all of these things are starting to come together and connect. I had a call with the organizer of the program and, you know, she asked some questions. One of her questions, one of the things she asked me was, and this I just remember so vividly, she goes, you know, you don't make a lot of money in publishing. I'm just letting you know it's one of those degrees that like people do to get into the job. And and so, right, the baseline understanding when you get into publishing is like, there's not a lot of money, right? We do this for the love and we do this for the books. And so, you know, it's very much that that mentality, but it's so privilege driven, right? Who has the, like, who has the ability and the safety net to be able to do a post-grad degree and and get into publishing and and do a job in a huge market like Toronto, New York, London, where you're not going to make very much money, right? So that's kind of, you know, where publishing was at. And so, you know, I, I did the degree. I'm like, this isn't going to phase me. I'm going to be the one that makes it, you know, I was so convinced. I'm like, I'm going to make the money in publishing wherever it was going to be, but I really did fall in love with agenting. And so to me, it was, it was the beauty of the mix of all of the different 
you know, elements of the business, right? I get to work directly with creators, whether it's, you know, like yourself, you know, cookbook creators and recipe developers, food stylists. I also get to work with amazing novelists. I get to work with really fun kid lit creators. And so I just, I get to do all of that creation business. And then I get to sell the books, do the contracts, you know, negotiate all the terms and really just kind of work as a project manager from beginning to end. So my job is, you know, just being there through the good stuff and the bad stuff and the fun stuff and the tough stuff and having the hard conversations and celebrating all the wins. And it's just a really fun, immersive job that you can't really turn it off. It's like a 24 seven type of job because, you know, we just, we love it. And and that's what we're here for. So, so I did my grad uh, degree in, in London. It was just a one-year program and I had a built-in internship. So I and had a lot of amazing connections through alumni. I got my first job over in London, uh, working at an agency over there. And then I came back to Canada in 2010. Um, not that the job market was getting any better, but landed back here and did a couple kind of temp jobs, internships, things like that. And I've been working at uh, PS Literary pretty much ever since. So I became an agent in the fall of 2010. And, and here we are. So it's um, you know my dream job and I'm, I'm doing it every day and I'm thrilled about it. Okay. There's so much I want to unpack there, but also the fact that you talked about like there isn't a lot of money in publishing and how so often like opportunities are really internship driven. And like, that's a huge, like the magazine industry fashion, there are so many industries where it does require like a certain degree of privilege or somehow you're living with 27 roommates and eating like nothing but canned soup for, you know, six months in order to like manage the you know, even just getting your foot in the door, like, do you see that that's changing at all? Or because it's an industry where not a lot of money is made in general, like it's still very internship heavy? It's a great question. I, I do think it's changing. And I'm very hopeful about that because it's it's great. You know, there were so many unpaid internships in the in the 2010s that we you know nobody wants to relive. And so, you know, our agency made a push a number of years ago to make sure our interns are paid and it's all remote. So, you know, you're not commuting in or doing anything like that. That tends to kind of you have to sacrifice more for them what you get. You know what I mean? So we've been cognizant of that. And I do think the industry as a whole has been better about that. I think we got a very long way to go, but the paying your dues mentality, it's it's very hard in a legacy media business to get over that. And and yeah, I, I but I do think we've made some, some really good strides. I'm definitely excited about it. The other thing is the book business is doing really well. I mean, the pandemic has been so good to the book business, which thank God, there's so many horrible things, obviously that have, that have happened in the pandemic you know, so many, you know, hardships, but people were at home and they were reading, right? And and people were at home watching Netflix and those Netflix shows were optioned by, you know, from books and that IP existed, you know, from creators and people have been getting paid. Publishing's doing really well. The book market is up, you know, I think it was up 9% in, in 2021, which is amazing, you know, for a legacy media business like ourselves. It's just really exciting that people are still coming to books in times of need, especially for escapism on the fiction side. And then as, you know, people looking for real, experts and great content and scientists that know what they're talking about, you know, in books. That's amazing to hear because I think there's so much cynicism, particularly because it's so easy to spend your entire day on like Instagram or Netflix that people are still not, not just still reading, but maybe reading more now than they used to, which is kind of amazing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And another part of the business that's that's been really successful is audiobooks. So that was actually double digit growth, which was really exciting, right? And I think people thought because of the lack of commuters during the pandemic that that number would go down. But people, I think, need a break, right? We're Zooming all day long. Like our eyes are tired and people in the book business, like we're exhausted from reading all the time. And so audiobooks have been, you know, just so amazing in terms of growth. So yes, rest assured, everybody, books aren't going anywhere. <laughs> With audiobooks too, I think, I wonder if podcasting and like the rise, because you yourself have a podcast, The Shit About Writing, which is so awesome, awesome, awesome. And people should listen to it. They're authors or aspiring authors. But like maybe our, we're just getting used to being talked to. Like I think like our parents' generation, right? They listen to talk radio and that was like something that was for older people. But now everybody from a very young age are listening to podcasts. So we are getting used to like being essentially read to or talked to. And like, yeah. maybe so it's like listening to a podcast or listening to an audiobook. Like it's just, it's that fluid experience, right? From one to the other. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think some of it has to do with kind of the the way that social media has evolved, right? There used to be that Instagram that was like, we have to be perfect on Instagram. We have to take these perfect photos. Everything's perfect, perfect, perfect. And then I love how the next generation came along and they're like, no, we're not doing perfect on Instagram, right? And we'll talk to the camera. We won't put our makeup on. And, and that realness and that brand building that I think has evolved from that perfect Instagram to stories with audio to podcast to, you know, that, that whole transition of us just being real with each other and having real conversations and, and figuring out avenues to have those conversations, I think has been amazing for podcasts. And yes, I definitely think that you can make the leap from podcast listeners, our audiobook readers as well. Yeah. Honestly, I, I could not even do the perfect Instagram thing. Like I was like, I don't even know how to like do this. I love, I'm just starting to get into TikTok and I love that it's just so off the cuff and just so real, like most of the time, not all the time, but like most of the time. And it feels so it's it's ridiculous that it feels refreshing to be quote unquote real on social media, but like here for it. I know, I know. I've the past probably few years, I don't even know when. Time is elusive during the pandemic. I yeah. can't keep track of time, but not using filters. I'm very much a like I'm a no filter person, like <laughs> in terms of my mouth as well as my face. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So in terms of like if if you are interested in writing a book and let's focus on cookbooks because that's the thing that I know. I think a lot of creators and recipe developers, like it would be such a dream for them to write a cookbook. Like are cookbooks also part of what's growing in the industry, despite like all of the blogs and like all of the free recipes on Instagram? Like are they growing? What are publishers looking for? Like what's a great modern cookbook? Right now. That's such a that's such a good question. Yes. So definitely, definitely people want cookbooks because what they want is curated, right? Nobody has time to pull up their allrecipes.com and like scroll through their list and figure out what they're gonna make. Everybody favorites those, but they don't make them, right? And so we need somebody who is trusted to curate that for us, right? And that's what we're looking for is whether it's a recipe developer or whether it's a blogger. But the most important thing is having a very strong food philosophy. So there's a lot of people out there who are great home cooks or chefs, but they don't know how to actually communicate what it is that is special about their take on food. And so it's so, so important to have a very strong food philosophy. So that's my number one go-to when I'm looking at a proposal. Unfortunately, the next thing on my list is platform. And I know it is so annoying <laughs> for me to say that. And in the book business, we use the word platform to mean 
followers, subscribers, listeners, <laughs> how many famous friends do you have? And I know there's probably people cursing at me listening to this podcast right now, but it's so important. And why it's important is that we need that buy-in from people, right? We have to know that what you are talking about is connecting with people because cookbooks are a huge expense, right? They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. They're, you know, four color printed, you know, the price point is a bit higher, right? And so for a publisher to put the money into producing something like that, they have to know people are going to buy it. (laughs) And so it's very important to have that groundwork done in terms of, you know, what it is that you're connecting with people on. So there's so many ways it could be a newsletter, right? It could be you're on TV. It could be a podcast. It could be a blog. It could be Instagram, could be TikTok talk. I'm not saying there's one way to have a platform, but I'm just saying having a way to be able to connect with your audience and knowing that people are connecting with you is very important. So that's kind of it. Food philosophy, you know, do I buy in with what you're saying? For me, I know there's a whole market out there on this, but I'm a very like anti-diet book person. So I'm not signing up any diet books. I'm very much like we eat real food in my house. So that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you know, the amount of like keto cookbooks. I was always, I think you shared a list with me or something of like the top 10, like best-selling cookbooks in like a certain period of time. And I was absolutely blown away again, how diet driven, even sometimes cookbooks still are like with the keto and the paleo and this and that. I'm like, no, cookbooks are supposed to be about enjoying food. <laughs> I know. Like, I know. Loving Those are food. my books. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is very, it's very diet book driven because a lot of cookbooks tend to come out. There's seasonality. Sometimes the cookbooks where it's like the January, the quote unquote new year, new you. Right. And unfortunately some people still set goals at that time of year that reflect food choices. And some of that is, you know, stuff that can be restrictive and therefore they need a cookbook to help guide them through it. And so, you know, I don't believe in a morality about food, like food is good food. We need food. Everybody needs food unless you have allergies, of course. And then there's that whole like mother's day kind of time period, like spring ish where cookbooks come out. And then there's always, you know, some heavy hitters that come out in the fall, which will be, you know, kind of your um, celebrity chefs and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the three time periods. And unfortunately, yeah, there's still a lot of diet books out there that do move the needle. Yeah. And, you know, it's coming back to what you said as platform. I think it's so hard. And I feel like this has changed now. Like it is more about sort of like outward facing platforms. Like I remember when I was younger buying cookbooks where like the the author of the cookbook wasn't a big name. Like they didn't have like a famous restaurant or like they didn't necessarily have a TV show, but they were like maybe staff writers for like, I don't know, food and wine magazine or something. Like there was like a genre of people who are like, no, 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 I write cookbooks. Whereas now, like, I feel so lucky because, you know, me approaching you as an agent and like getting the contract for Eat More Plants, like that was hot off the heels of me having a show because I certainly didn't have an Instagram platform. <laughs> I think I had much less than 10,000 followers on Instagram, you know, and it was that idea that I had the show and I had that reach that really sort of, I feel, helped me secure that book because... Yeah, but I mean, for for the listeners that that don't know Desiree, maybe the way that I do, <laughs> the thing about Desiree is that you were so driven and so confident and you really did know your food philosophy. You were like, this is what I'm about, right? And being unapologetic about being driven, being passionate, and not just for rising, you know, your own star rising, just for the good of humanity and being like, I need to spread this science-based message to people in a way that works. And so you were so clearly going places, I guess. (laughs) That's very sweet. I always, okay. So this is maybe a good time to talk about like how one 
finds an agent and attracts an agent. Because when I was, when I was thinking about doing eat more plants, you know, like Google machine, I was like, how do you find a literary agent? <laughs> and like all these kind of things. And I read so many articles, like agents don't want to be found. Like, you know, they're really private and they don't want a bunch of pitches and like, because of like publishing and cookbooks being such an investment of time, of money, of resources. And, you know, you have to then get everyone's attention. Like it's hard writing a cookbook because I feel like I'm always asking for help. You know, like, I'm like, okay, I made this book and I need your help to help me like do contracts. And then I need to ask folks, I'm like, hey, I made this book, please buy this book or please share this book. You're constantly asking for help as an author. And so how do you like recommend that people go about finding an agent and what do they need to think about in order to like attract an agent's attention? Because I'm sure you get like thousands and thousands of queries. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll speak more. I'll target this to the cookbook audience, of course, because we're, you know, we're, we're a food group here, but I do do fiction and other types of nonfiction as well. But our agency gets like 2000 emails a month of people that want to publish a book and not just cookbooks, all books. Right. And so we're going through these trying to figure out, you know, where's the book? You know, what are we excited about? What do we think is going to fit with the market? And so the most important thing, especially for food authors and especially for cookbook authors is you want somebody with a track record of selling those types of books. Because they, you know, as you, as you know, we've been talking about, they are a very specific market segment where there are certain requirements and needs for everything from how do I hire a photographer to what is a food stylist, <laughs> who buys the props, you know. And if you don't have an agent that kind of has been through that a few times, I'm not saying that's not the right agent. I'm just saying like they'll be learning along with you, right? And sometimes it's just better to have an agent who has done a lot of cookbooks or an agency who has done a lot of cookbooks so that you know that you're getting help where you need it. And a lot of times when I work with first-time food writers and first-time cookbook authors, they just they don't know the questions to ask, right? They just don't know that these things are going to come up or who's going to pay for the art or you know who's going to pay for the photographer or how do we shoot a cover for a, for a cookbook, right? You know, how do we leave room for text? You know, there's just so many things that they just don't know until it's too late. And with publishing, too late is too late, right? You just can never go back and redo things sometimes after you have gone into copy edits or, you know, you're into production. And, you know, one time... I had somebody call me who was a referral from a client. You know, one of my clients was like, hey, I got a friend in a pickle. So this friend in a pickle calls me and they're in the middle of a book deal and they didn't have an agent. And she's like, will you help me now? She's like in tears. Will you help me now? Like, you know, I'm, I've got into this situation and I just need help. And I'm like, I can't really help you now. Like, I really wish I could, but I don't have a magic wand that can go back and, and fix things, right? And undo a contract and, and things like that. So it's so important to have somebody in your space that just really gets you, gets the market and can really be there for you in a way that helps, you know, that really, truly helps. And I really do believe that agents, you know, just so everybody knows the kind of standard commission for an agent is 15%, one, 5% of, of, of the revenue that kind of comes in. So we don't take money ahead of time. We're not like lawyers on a retainer or anything like that. It's like, we make money when the book sells, like that's our business model. So I take a chance on everything every time. And so, you know, I really want to be excited for something up front. I want to, you know, have a vision for it, be there from beginning to end, like a project manager. And, and that's just my style. And, and I'm pretty hands-on. I'm sure Desiree would agree with that. <laughs> 
And it's so nice, particularly because like when I was making eat more plants, like I was like, you don't know, like, how are things going to go? And like, exactly. Like, how do I shoot a hundred recipes? And like, even how long it takes and eat more plants was a bit ridiculous. And like, I vowed to never, never do that again. Like, I think I wrote it in seven months. I think I wrote a hundred recipes and then like 80 pages up front in seven months, but that was working like until 11 o'clock or midnight every night. And then I crashed hard for like a month or two months. The other thing is you have to like finish the recipes in order to shoot them. Right. And then you have to deliver all of this on a delivery date. So there's no procrastination in cookbooks. It's like you get to work because you have to do all the recipe creation, do the testing, and then you shoot everything. Right. Some people do it in batches. There's a few ways to do it, but like you have a delivery date with a publisher and that's not just the text that's like images as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are probably really surprised. And it was interesting. I was talking with like some like other authors in Australia. And so I think it varies per country, but yeah. So like in order to make eat more plants, I had a deadline and I had to deliver the book. Like that includes writing, researching, doing all the recipe development, like testing those recipes to make sure that they're perfect, always going to work. And then, yeah, like planning the photo shoots. Like we did, we did it differently for eat more plants than good for your gut. And like eat more plants. I did all the photos afterwards. Like it was just in my brain. Like that was the only way that it worked. It's like, okay, I could focus on writing, finish the manuscript and then like turn a page and be like, okay, so like now we're in photo shoot mode. But just remember like day after day, like we were doing 10 to 12 recipes a day. And then I would grocery shop after. So like we did it in my basement where I'm actually sitting right now. This was just like a completely empty room at that point. And we just had like tables set up and doing all of that. And yeah, like there was Sophie, my food stylist and Janice, my photographer working down here. And then upstairs, it was me plus like one volunteer just to help me cook and clean like all day. We did it all day. And then I would like clean up for a couple of hours and like go to like Whole Foods. And I remember one time like sitting in my car, just like bawling. I was like, I'm so tired. And we did it totally different for good for your gut. A, I learned how to like grocery shop for the entire photo shoot at once and greatly cut down on like my photo shoot time. But then we broke it up too, so that we were never shooting for more than three or four days at a time. And I felt it was like for such an intense, but also creative process, it was much easier to like, like go hard and then like, like relax for a month and like do it again. Yeah. Especially if you want to make tweaks to things, right? Because if you like do all the recipe creation and then you shoot it and you're like, what if in the moment, you know, while you're preparing for the shoot, you're like, oh, there's tweaks here and there you want to make, right? Yeah. Or even, you know, I was lucky enough, especially with a good for your gut to have people helping me on the photo shoot who are also really great cooks. Mm. And they'd be like, uh, did you mean to do this? And I was like, no, I didn't mean to do this. Or they're like, this is actually much better with like another half a, te- like, let's put another half a teaspoon when we're all tasting it. And we're like, mm. this could be more flavorful. And it's like, okay, let's pop another half a teaspoon of like cumin in there kind of thing. And it was really nice to like do it alongside the writing because yeah, it, it felt like another opportunity to recipe test and like prove the recipes as we were going along, which is kind yeah. of awesome. Well, you're definitely speaking to the community nature of cookbooks, right? And like, it really does take a village. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, and I think people don't realize, cause you walk into a bookstore and there are just like so many books. And until I started making books myself, like you have no idea that a book is easily 
one to three years of someone's life, like mm-hmm. on that page. And it's edited and like read like so many times by so many people and there's recipe testers and some, like some people actually get like sous chefs to help them like write all up. I don't do that. I probably should, but it's very expensive. And so I do that all myself. Yeah. And there's also the you know publicity and marketing team that specialize in food, right? It's like such a culture of people that you're around constantly that just love food, right? And just want to spread the word about good food. Yeah, totally. And even the relationship like with your editor, like I feel so lucky to have Andrea because she knows nutrition and cookbooks and plant-based cookbooks like so well. And I remember getting like notes from her on eat more plants and just being so shocked. I was like, how does she know that? Like she would catch me in just an error. Cause of course you're writing at 11 o'clock at night. And like, and I was like, oh my gosh. So that's only an error that like someone who like really knows nutrition and food would know, which sort of, again, speaks to this idea of like making sure you have an agent and an editor who like really know their stuff in your area because they make you 10 times better than you'd be otherwise. Absolutely. So if someone is actually looking for an agent, like, can we talk about the query letter, mm-hmm. for example? Because that's really common is that, you know, if if you see an agent and that you like and they, you know, represent books that you love. And I totally did that. I when I was looking, I was like, how does one find an agent? I would like look in the like acknowledgements of books and be like, oh, thank you to my agent. And I was like, oh yeah, clever. But then you write a query letter and like what's in a query letter? Yeah. So the query letter is basically a cover letter. You can kind of imagine for a job basically. And what you're kind of angling for is a partnership is what you're looking for. So ironically, we're on a a cooking podcast, but the kind of, you know, the, the way that I suggest that people remember it is, so you do your your hook, your book, and your cook is the way you organize it. So your hook is the top part, the first paragraph, and your hook is, you know, what's your vision? What's your philosophy? Like what makes your book special, right? You have to kind of think about it like a business plan. And then the middle section is, you know, your book concept. And then the cook section is the author bio. So hook, book, cook is kind of what you're kind of, the way you're trying to organize it. So as I said, it's really a business plan and your query letter is like a cover letter. And what comes, what follows that if if an agent likes it is your proposal. And so that query letter is kind of like that simmered down version of your proposal into a letter. And it focuses on, again, what, you know, what is unique about your book? What's unique about your food philosophy? Why are you the right person to write it? Why are you the right person to write it right now? You know, why do we need that book right now? Sometimes we talk about things like called comps which are comp titles, comparison titles. So your book or your food philosophy is like, you know, so-and-so meets so-and-so, you know, whether you have, you know, your favorite chefs or your favorite food creators, your favorite cookbook authors, you're kind of trying to place yourself within the canon of, of creators that you want to be a part of. And you will probably in the cook section include your platform numbers, meaning like, you know, I write on this blog or I have X number of newsletter subscribers or this post of mine went viral on TikTok or whatever to kind of show me that you know what you're talking about, right? Because as I said, it's one thing to love food. It's another thing to be a great cook, a great home chef, a great... But then there's the whole 
performance element of food, right? Is kind of what we're getting at here. It's like you're putting something out into the world for people not only to cook from, but also to entertain them. And a lot of times what I'm hearing lately about cookbooks is like, we also need a page turning element to it, which sounds ridiculous, but like you kind of need a reason to keep turning the pages, right? Like what is exciting about this book? And so this all comes back to what it is about your book that feels special and, and, and kind of think about it like a business plan. Yeah. And would you recommend that someone goes through the work of like making a book proposal before they start querying agents? Absolutely. Yeah. The book proposal process is so, so, so essential. And the bigger plan you do in terms of the length of your book proposal, the actual better setup you're going to be to write your actual book. Because sometimes people get into tricky situations when they haven't fully thought out their book concept, right? They haven't thought out the table of contents or the organization or the flow or the tone of voice or what they're going to put in the head notes, right? And if you don't think about that, then you have to think about it later. So why not just write the business plan, you know, write the proposal from the beginning? And that way you have a very clear sense of, of what the book is about. Because if you were to send out a query, you would want an agent to be able to request the material and then you can send the proposal right away, right? So you want that to be pretty quick. The other yeah. thing about food creators is that a lot of you guys are prolific online, which is amazing. And lot, there might be agents reaching out to you, right? So you might want to have always, you know, some some simmering ideas about, you know, what kind of cookbook you might eventually want to write because, yeah, it, it's still a popular category. Yeah, totally. And it's, you know, what you said about that curation piece. And, you know, I love, I mean, my house is literally filled with cookbooks. And they're like, like all behind me there and like all the bookshelves. but you know, it even comes back as a dietitian. I constantly be like, oh, I need, I need good recipes for tofu or I need good recipes for this. Or I would have clients who are like, I have like 5,000 recipes pinned on Pinterest and I still don't know what to make for dinner. And it's because it's way too much. It's like analysis paralysis. And when you have a cookbook, you sit down with it and like all of the other things go away and you're just like enjoying running through. And it's just so much easier to like pop a couple of post-its. I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds amazing. And like, oh yeah, that sounds amazing. And then actually take that and like make those foods in your house as opposed to the like thousand things on the internet that you're just like, wow, it's too much. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm totally agreeing with you because I have my clients who wrote a book called Eat With Us. It's a husband and wife duo, um, Phil and Mystique. They're amazing. And I think one of the things that really got tricky for people during the pandemic was this whole like sometimes food was the last thing we were thinking about. Even though we were home all the time, it was just like not a, not a thing we wanted to make. And one of the things I love about their about their book and what I love about Phil Mystique is that it's really about bringing the presence back to food, right? And using it as a meditative experience. And I think cookbooks help facilitate that meditative experience to be, I'm going to be with food and remind myself of why we need food, right? It's not one of those things that we could do without. And I think with cookbooks, it reminds us of, you know, really connecting with our meals and it, it's one of those flow activities that, you know, like gardening or, you know, food, food is that for me as well, where you can just get lost in the moment. And there's not a lot of things in our lives these days where we can really truly feel like we get lost in the moment. And so that reminds me of, of Phil's philosophy about, you know, food being that moment where we can really just celebrate our bodies and ourselves and our families. And, and instead of being like, what am I going to make for dinner? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it becomes, you know, it's interesting now writing, <laughs> writing cookbooks in the pandemic, like there were so many days that like I was so stressed out or so upset that like, I couldn't even imagine sitting in front of my computer, but I could cook because it was tactile, right? Like you could literally just 
like get lost in the process of chopping and mixing and feeling so present and like letting everything else fall away. And I think, especially if you have a family, it's really easy to like get wrapped up in the like, oh, like I just have to feed my family. But if with a little bit of a mindset shift, you're like, okay, this is actually time when I decompress. I decompress from my work day. I can put on music or like put on some headphones if you need to. Sometimes I need to use headphones just to tune everything else out. And like, it's a really beautiful process to be able to cook for yourself. And then if you get like a really yummy meal, like for yourself and your family out of it, like a bonus. Yeah. I know there's a like productive element to it, right? Where you're like, I actually created a thing that, yeah. you know, we can do something with. And kind of what that just reminded me of, you know, one of the reasons why I've kind of come to love working on, on cookbooks, because not every agent specializes in cookbooks. And, and that kind of reminded me of it, which is I didn't grow up cooking, right? So I'm not somebody who was like a trained chef or anything. Like I'm a book nerd, right? And so when I think about why I wanted to get into cookbooks and why food means so much to me is that a lot of a lot of my experience with food throughout my 20s was a, a relearning to love food again and you know learning to love our bodies in new ways and and as they grow and change as adults. And so I've just loved the kind of like retraining of my mind that working on cookbooks and working with food specialists, you know, such as yourselves has done for me because there's such a warmth in this community and people just a celebration of, of not feeling bad about wanting to eat great food. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing wrong with that. Food's great. We need it and we love it. And so, yeah, that just re-education of, of loving food and getting excited about food. And I married into an Italian family and their just food philosophy is just like, food is great. <laughs> like we're can eat dessert or dessert whatever we want because you know let's celebrate being together and being a family you know we're gonna have that glass of red wine with our meal because you know it's just part of our ritual and our experience of, of loving food and so that's just one of the things I always come back to yeah and you know even like as like writing the cookbooks I do it's the coolest thing that I can make something in my kitchen with the intention that someone else is going to make it in their kitchen. Like it is so amazing to think that you're, especially because it's like, I'm not a restaurant chef. I don't have that experience of like people coming into my space and like feeding them every night and seeing the smiles on their faces. But it's, so it's so interesting writing a cookbook and be like, no, someone else is going to make this in their kitchen. Even if I can't see them, even if they're not going to post it on Instagram, like it's a really special bond with the like end reader of that work. Cause you're like, no, no, no. I am feeding them in this like indirect way, which is super, yes. super cool. I love that. And I think, again, that kind of comes back to why these platforms matter, right? It's because you know that you already have built these connections with people and they want to take a piece of you home and, and have that connection with you. And you can both share and bond through that. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So if someone is successful in getting an agent and putting a book proposal together, then the agent pitches that book proposal and that author to publishers. Like, what is that like as an agent? Because if you are a book nerd and you're just like, I love getting lost in books, like this is like a very like sales and negotiation component of things that like maybe some people have in their personality already. And some people don't like, was that already something that you loved or did you really have to sort of like learn to love it? Cause it's part of the work. Yeah. That's such an interesting question. I mean, I think anybody that gets into agenting, loves like has that both sides to them right and so I always say like there's that kind of like there's the art element and then there's like the commerce element right in terms of any any sphere in terms of you know any artistry whether it's actual fine art or books or music right there's like people that are in it for the art and there's people that are in it for the money right and so but there's also agents out there that are 
like you can imagine the kind of sharkish type of agents you imagine when you hear the word agent, you think like somebody who's like a shark or somebody on TV or like, like Ari from Entourage, right? You're thinking like somebody who's out to get it. Right. And then there's other people who are like extremely soft and really very author focused, creator focused, you know, just hyper specific in that space. And I think whenever you start agenting, you're somewhere on that spectrum And I feel like I started kind of in the middle and I feel like I'm probably still in the middle. Like I I feel like I've always been somebody who, because I don't write, I have such a respect for creators and I have such a respect for writers, but I also am very in tune with the fact that we live in a capitalist society. We are driven by money, right? That's how we pay our bills, you know? And, And I am so focused on helping creators get paid. You know, it's like, how do we get this money from these giant multinational companies into creators' pockets, right? Like they're the ones that need the money. And so whenever I'm negotiating, I'm just really focused on who needs this money, right? (laughs) Does the bank need this money? Or does my author who works two jobs, you know, who wrote this beautiful manuscript need the money, right? And, And that really just really makes me focused on helping my authors, right? Because I'm not paid by the publisher. I'm paid by my author, right? My commission comes from the client. And so I'm very much hired by the author to do the the work to support them through the good times and the bad times. And so I feel like I am somebody that can see both sides. I have respect for both sides. And I do think that's what makes me a good agent is that I can see where everybody's coming from. But at the end of the day, you know, my job is to get money in my client's pocket. So, so yeah, it's every day is different too, right? Every, a client, every deal, but I, I still continue to just love it and, and just be that kind of middle mediating kind of person that, that floats in and out of publishers and authors lives just to make everybody's job easier, right? Part of my job is also being a mediator. Yeah. And it is, it is so nice as someone who I like, I'm in my forties and I still hate negotiation and I hate like all of that kind of stuff. And it's really nice to not have to do that for the book and to just be like, I can create, I know that someone awesome has my back. And especially because writing cookbooks specifically is a really expensive premise. Like writing any book is expensive in that no one's paying you while you're writing. Right. Like, especially if you're writing the book before you have like a contract for that book. But like with cookbooks, like you have to buy food and even writing like a plant-based cookbook, like my grocery costs for a book are, I try not to pay too much attention, but I ballparked it for eat more plants. And I think it was in the like neighborhood of like somewhere between five and $8,000, like just to pay for the food (laughs) to like make the recipes and the recipe fails and all those kind of things. And then you have to like here in Canada, we pay for our photographers. And if you have a food stylist, it's like sometimes the photographer does the food styling, sometimes they don't. And you need another food stylist. Like all those things are costs associated, like hard costs before you even think about how are you compensated for your time. Yeah, no, it's it's such a complex kind of, as, as you said, right? Like everybody has a specific job and my job is to make sure everybody else does their job <laughs> and does it well. And one of the things I love about being the kind of mediator kind of role is that, it really lets my authors have a connection with their editors that is entirely creative, right? It's purely creative. And sometimes certain authors like to be involved in the business conversations more than others and and I'll respect whatever they want. But one of the things I love about my job is that I let creators be creative with their editors, right? And I take the kind of business stuff out of that conversation so that they can have those direct relations with their editors that feel very creative and very book focused in the way that they don't have to deal with icky stuff they don't want to deal with. (laughs) That is very much me. In terms of like, writing a cookbook, I had always heard 
that, you know, before I did it, that, you know, a book is like an expensive business card, right? So it's not always, particularly with a first book, if you don't have like some like million TikTok follower platform, it's not something you'll do to make like a ton of money, but there are so many opportunities that come you know, speaking engagements and appearances and like new collaboration, like if you're on social media, like new collaborations. And it really, the the book is sort of like this proof for you that yes, when it does well, can absolutely earn you money, but it's, it also offers you other opportunities ahead of that. How many of your authors are just like a hundred percent, like full-time authors? Do you think? It's so funny because the longer I've done this, I've been doing this 12 years. So the longer that I've done this, I've just realized that everything comes in waves. You know, it's like, this could be somebody's full-time job for three years and then they do teaching and then they do this or, you know what I mean? So as much as like people have this dream of like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to be a full-time author. And it's like, you're going to do that for the next 40 years. Like careers come and go, money comes and goes. Right. And I think the authors that stick around as authors are people that love the book process that really want to that understand that there is limitations of the process, but want to work within those limitations because, you know, book publishing takes two, three years, right? This isn't like we're throwing up an ebook in, in two months kind of thing, right? And I know the internet always wants more and more and more. And one of the hard things about being a recipe creator or a cookbook author is that you can't put that content on Instagram today that you are saving for your book. And I know that is so hard for people who are even non-cookbook authors, but other nonfiction creators, right? Who want to, you know, share what they're doing on social media you have to save that for your book, right? And so it's so hard for people sometimes to think long-term, but you really do have to set yourself up for success. And a lot, one of the things that I always ask people when I'm signing them as a new client is, especially cookbook authors is, you know, what's your two to five-year plan? But that's what matters to me, right? Like, the book's going to come out in two years, ideally two to three years. And then you're promoting the book for the next two years, right? So what, what, where is your brand going in those two to five years? Are you pursuing television? Are you, you know, focusing on social media? You know, what is it that you're trying to do in those two to five years? That'll help shape where we want the book to go, right? And then if that's successful, then we do another book, right? But we can't plan a series of books until we make one book a success. And so I think another one of the things I'm good at is really thinking in a career-oriented way, in a long-term way, because yes, a book is one thing, but, you know, we hope that you have a career. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm reading Atomic Habits right now. And like, it's just the whole process of like writing a book, it's delaying gratification, right? Because you, you essentially go underground, you go underground and you do all this work and you can't tell anyone about this work. It's like your first trimester of pregnancy, except it lasts like 18 months to like two years. You're like, say nothing, maybe a cheeky little hint every now and then. And you're like, blah, the book comes out. And I think people don't realize like how long it takes. Like I think with Eat More Plants, it was like 18 months. Like I delivered the manuscript and like the, the publication of that book wasn't until like 18 months later. Cause there's like so many rounds of editing and then there's design. They have to like mock up the recipes and like make sure they all work with their design and yeah, like the typesetting the- and getting everything sent to the printer it's printed overseas and then you ship it back and the shipping delays i don't know if anybody listening has been following all the shipping delays it's a whole other thing well and good for your gut you know our release date changed for that to may 2nd because of shipping delays and so it's like we're just building in this like extra buffer because we know everything is taking so much longer so yeah it's like that that waiting period when the work is done and, but you're like not really telling anyone about it. And you're like, but I'm so excited. And it's totally like a movie. Cause like movies, I never thought about this. Cause like movies are made and they take so long 
too. So you're like, oh, there's this brand new movie. And it's like, actually, it was like shot like two and a half years ago or whatever. <laughs> and as a cookbook author, trying to think what's trendy now and is going to f- like fan out 18 months from now versus like, yeah, like what's going to feel fresh and exciting, which I think I stress out too much over. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I remember us having this conversation and you kind of asking about like, what are people going to watch? And, you know, and that sort of thing. And I, the thing that I always come back to is that creators are creators, right? And you guys are good at your job for the reason of your finger is on the pulse, even if it doesn't feel like it's on the pulse, because it always feels like new stuff is happening or new science. And I know you're so good about reading all the journal articles and everything like that. And, and so there's always new stuff happening, but you guys are the front lines, right? And so I don't like, I know what's going on in the book business, but like, you know, what's going on in the health business. And so that is important. And it really just comes down back to that food philosophy and having trust in your vision. And I think the, the more mature food creators get, the more they realize that they do have a specialty and you have to lean into that specialty. And obviously you can kind of step outside of your box, you know, whenever you want, but you have to build brand in that space of of the direction you want to go. But there's a difference between being conscious about building your brand and having an unconscious brand kind of built into you and then reflecting back and be like, oh, that was that is my brand. You know what I mean? So some people are so outwardly focused on building a brand, they forget to think about like the brand's been inside me the whole time, you know? And that's what I try to help people figure out is like that brand has been inside you, right? And it's our job to like help that come out in the book process. Yeah, that's so awesome. I Before we get to our rapid fire questions, I want to ask you one more thing because I think it's like, so important to like writing books in the book industry, but I think maybe folks who buy books don't quite understand it. And that is pre-orders. Like why are authors in, in the multiple things that an author is going to ask you to help them with over the course of their writing a book, authors asks you to pre-order their book, like before the launch date, like why is this so important? Why are we doing this? Oh man, it's a tough question. And I know that like having to sell yourself thing can always just be like a little bit churning, but I'll tell you guys why it's so important. So number one is that the demand, right? When you can create and demonstrate a demand for something that creates attention to something. And so if somebody has a great following on social media to say like, hey, I got my book coming out. Love it if you pre-ordered it. You know, it mean a lot to me. And what they're asking is that I'm asking you to, to make sure my publisher pays extra attention to me. I'm asking you to make sure that Amazon doubles their order. I'm asking you to make sure Costco stocks my book. Like what they're asking for is that outward investment in them as a person. So that pre-order means a lot. It means so much more than like just clicking, right? It means you helping spread the word. And so there's a lot of power, right? And just think about purchasing power in general, right? Whenever you purchase something, you know, you, you, you are investing power in that, right? And so the power that you're giving to the author is making sure people are paying more attention. And so the more pre-orders that somebody gets, the higher the print run right might be, right? And then the higher the print run means the better the distribution. And maybe the more publicity and the more press. And so all that early attention can really make a difference because the reality of the book business is that when you go into a bookstore, those books are essentially kind of like rented by the bookseller. So if if books don't actually fly off the shelves, the bookseller can ship those back to the publisher and get their full money back. So this 
this idea that the books kind of have to move is, is just like any other business, right? Like we need to sell these books to kind of show that that's selling through to make to another print run. And so it's just so important if you really want to buy a book and you really want to support somebody, buy it now, right? Because you might go into a store three months later and it might not be there, right? Because somebody didn't buy it now. So again, if you're excited about somebody, you know, they have a book coming out, pre-order it. It's such a fun thing to do. I can't even stress how exciting it is to pre-order something and then forget about it. And then it shows up on your doorstep and you're like, it's a present for me from my past self. And anyway, pre-orders are amazing. Not only are they fun for you, we get a little package um, in the mail, but also they really help the author a lot. Yeah. So, and that's so important because I think it's to, to understand, like, if you, if you really love this creator, if you've been enjoying like the free recipes and the free content that they provide, like you actually have a super important role to play. Like you pre-ordering this book can make a huge difference to like how many books. Yeah. Like I remember when Costco, like when my book got into Costco, I was like so excited. I was like, I've made it. My book got into Costco. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Cause they don't have that many cookbooks. So it's like, they bring it in. It's like, they believe in it. I was like, yes. So yeah. And like pre-orders help you do all that. Cause they can be like, look, there's like a lot of buzz about this book. We really think people are going to like it and we'll put more on the front table at Indigo and like Costco will bring it in. So yeah, I just wanted to cover that. Cause I think it's like one of those very industry things that from the outside, people would be like, this seems weird. Like, why wouldn't I just like wait till it comes out and like buy it in the store? It's like, because it'll yeah. be more in the store if you pre-order. The other thing I didn't mention about pre-orders, again, this is very industry specific, but the way that I, I'm sure you guys, you know, follow the bestseller list like I do, but basically what a bestseller list is, is a curation of that week's top sales. And so whenever you pre-order somebody's book, it actually counts towards the first week's sale. And that can help somebody launch on the bestseller list because not only were their books sold that week, but those pre-orders all went to like in a basket, right? Ready to drop on that first week sale. So you can really make or break somebody's career in an amazing way just by hitting that pre-order link. Yeah. I was, I remember getting like the email that eat more plants made number one and I just bawled my eyes out. And I definitely think pre-order, you know, like pre-orders helped make that happen, right? Yeah, yeah. But it just speaks to the community that you built, right? And it's it's just so important to come back to, you know, why are you doing this? And why are people here to support you? And, and you know, you've built this community for a reason and, and they're here to support you now. So it's a beautiful thing. It is. And if you're listening to this right now, I mean you. So I do honestly have the best community on the internet. I feel so grateful every day. So this was so awesome. Thank you. I love sort of like getting under the hood of what it means to like write a book and like aspire to those things and how the industry actually works. But I want to close, as I always do, with some rapid fire questions. So you read so much. I read a lot, but honestly, you read like 10 times more than me. <laughs> Best book you have read in 2022 so far? Oh, that's a good question. Oh my gosh, 2022 so far. Oh, you know what I'm reading on audiobook that I'm just obsessed with is Stephen Rowley wrote this book called The Gunkle. It is so funny. Oh my gosh. Really? It's called Gunkle because it's like gay uncle. And it's about this story of this gay man whose sister-in-law passed away and the dad is just having a rough time and somebody has to watch the two kids. So he takes them back to Palm Springs and has this just like Gunkle moment with the kids. And it's so funny. He actually reads the audiobook, and I am laughing every day. I'm laughing every time I listen to it. It makes me so happy. So Stephen Riley's The Gunkle is just like A+. plus. Okay. I love that. Next one is totally self-serving because I'm new to Peloton. Who's your favorite Peloton instructor? Oh, that's a really good question. So I have a tie between Cody and Emma Lovewell. Those are my two. 
I really like both of them. Cody, I feel like I'm just Cody Rigsby for those of you that aren't Peloton fans. He has just like such a vibe about him that you just feel like you're getting on the bike and hanging out with a friend, which is so freeing and a little escapist. But you also work really hard. And then Emma Lovewell, she does the rock rides and she'll do like alt rock rides. And I just really feel that she's yeah, she's the best. Cool. So in addition to being like a badass lit agent, you are also a parent. And so what's your go-to weeknight dinner? So tonight I'm making sticky chicken. It's like a um, Asian inspired chicken dish. I'm going to make it with, I haven't decided what type of noodles, maybe like an egg noodle and some greens, but basically what are my go-to weeknight dinners? I really like, I think it's Cookie and Kate has this lentil and roasted cauliflower taco that's really good where you do lentils and onions kind of like as the like faux meat portion of it and then you do roasted cauliflower and then you do like a nice like mayo like a sriracha mayo with it you can also throw some some more veg on that desiree don't worry we'll add our avocado we'll add our cilantro that's another really good one but really for me i mean with the small kids we don't have a we don't we don't make special meals for them. Our philosophy is like, we're going to make adult meals and, and you eat it the way you want to. So we kind of just keep on with our adult meals. But in, this is not, sorry, I'm not answering this quickly. <laughs> I'm also very into like cozy meals because it's cold out. So um, I've been doing some like vegetable heavy, like pot pies and things like that. Nice. Yeah. Ottawa is like real Canada winter. So like you need way more of the cozy foods than we do here on the West Coast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We got a huge dump of snow. I think it was, I'm, I'm about five, six and it was up past my knees in terms of snow. Oh, that's too much. Yeah. We had snow here too this winter. And I was just like, what is it? It was really great. Cause it was Christmas time. And then like once Christmas was over, I was like, okay, I'm done. Best thing about being an agent. There are so many different facets of my job that I feel like I could pick the best thing about every part of my job. The thing that I actually love the best is really just being my own boss, even though I'm part of an agency, which provides me amazing support and, and I love them. I really get to make the decisions about who I work with on a daily basis. And there's not a lot of jobs where you can say that you really handpick all of your clients. And I'm just so lucky that I literally handpicked everybody I work with and, and I just love it. And we're so grateful for it. <laughs> okay, last one. You have 20 minutes all to yourself. The rule is you have to spend it on yourself. You can't work. You can't like take care of your kids. What do you do with it? That's a good question. I'm very, 20 minutes isn't that much time, but I'm very into skiing right now. So if I could just like escape to do just even like an hour of skiing, I would just be so happy to be outside, be in the fresh air. My answer is usually reading, but because I read so much for work, just being physical and being outside would be my answer. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. I think there's a lot of little tidbits that people have a lot to learn. And then if they really want to learn more about publishing and writing and all that kind of stuff, they can listen to your awesome podcast, The Shit About Writing. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye, everyone. I'm going to be real with you. One of the best days of my career was the day that Carly said she wanted to represent me because I knew if she believed in my work, then I actually had a chance. And with her by my side, I knew that my dream of hitting the bestseller list could actually happen because she is so smart and so passionate about this work. And she really makes my work better. So if you know any aspiring authors, please share this episode with them and definitely have them check out Carly's pod, The Shit About Writing. I know I run a wellness podcast. This is not exactly a wellness episode. So I hope you enjoy this little behind the scenes diversion of how things work in my world. And if you love this one, 
Be sure to tune in on Friday for part two with photographer, food stylist, and recipe developer, Sophia McKenzie, for more behind the scenes details on what really goes into making a cookbook. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and Tracy Ramsey and edited by Brian McCalman. And we respectfully acknowledge that we live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Stolo, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples.